Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I am Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Good morning. Welcome back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. And today we have our second interview to put up mm-hmm. about the Chronicles of Narnia and why white evangelicals love them so much. But today we're branching out a little bit. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, how are you doing, Crispin? Uh, yeah, so last night was the presidential debate. The first and, one, yeah. Um, yeah, we are, I know we have a lot of listeners from Canada, so hit us up. Tell us where we should move <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> it's a sad joke the privileged make. It's true. But also today um, is the deadline for President Trump to... Uh, you know, put uh, an official cap on U.S. refugee resettlement. And if he doesn't do it by today, then it goes to zero. And as somebody who has lived and worked and taught uh, ESL to refugees for the past, I don't even know how many years, I'm I'm just feeling really depressed. And there does come a point where I have to be like, well, if my country literally doesn't let refugees in, is it time to move? Mm-hmm. Anywho, that's how we're feeling today. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So great. Uh, but we're going to shift gears here. We're going to talk a little bit about what this interview is about. So first of all, I talked to Dr. Sonia Cronin on the other side of the country in Florida. She teaches at the University of Florida. And uh, she's super interesting because she has a background in teaching both the Hebrew scriptures and now she teaches like one of the most popular courses at her school, which is about uh, fantasy literature and Harry Potter, but it also includes stuff about Tolkien and Lewis. So people might be a little confused because we talk mostly about Harry Potter in this interview. Christian, why do you think it's important to continue to sort of set the scene with how we are approaching these books and how we're thinking about them? We're talking a lot about Harry Potter today. Well, it was really shocking to me to learn that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien actually like set this precedent for fantasy literature in the in academia so i think that's like that's a big piece of this is like this is it's not just like they're two separate series like c.s lewis sort of set this tradition i think right and we talked about that in our last interview kind of about the oxford school and Mm -hmm. the long-term effects of that we do talk a little bit with dr cronin about so you know some of the elements of fantasy, some of the things I really picked up on with talking to her was like, especially coming from a religious Christian background, just the reason we are drawn to fairy tales is because it like once upon a time is almost the exact opposite of thou shalt not, Mm. you know, that just Mm -hmm. really stuck out to me. And I was like, Oh yeah, it gives you that imaginative Mm -hmm. space and all of that. The other thing I thought, and we just went over this really quick, but sort of talking about putting C.S. Lewis in his context. She talks about how all the Disney villains were beautiful women. Had you thought about that before? No, uh uh-uh. This is like a huge thing in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Right. I mean, yeah, it was really interesting to be like, oh, yeah, totally. I thought of like Snow White's, you know, evil Mm -hmm. stepmother. Yeah. C.S. Lewis, you know, 
all a lot of his villains are beautiful women too who are all white is interesting i don't Mm -hmm. know that just that just made me yeah think about that but yeah i think we did mostly talk about harry potter because it's such a current discourse that goes way beyond obviously white evangelicals Mm -hmm. and their popularity is sort of like overtaking the culture at this point we didn't really get into it in this interview but obviously there are some overlaps with these questions of asking how do we engage with works of children's literature when the author has some troubling viewpoints? Troubling viewpoints. <laughs> yeah. And so for those who are aware, J.K. Rowling obviously has been in the news a lot for the past few years because of her comments that really have been devastating and, and harmful to people in the trans community. And so since that's not something you and I are very well versed in, it's not like we can speak to that, except I think it's pretty common sense to say, like, if a community that is very, very marginalized in our society set all together, says this is really harmful, uh, you got to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. Yeah. So I would say this has brought this question about children's fantasy. What do we do with the authors? What do we do when we've experienced a lot of good by immersing ourselves in these worlds, but the author has troubling viewpoints. Everybody, like not everybody, but a lot of people are asking themselves those very same questions. Yeah. I mean, in this interview, you talk about like this idea of Harry being created as created magical, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of like in his bones. Yeah. It's just like who he is. And I know that a lot of queer people have really benefited from these stories because of that yeah. theme. And so it it takes me back to like our inner my interview with Connie Baker when we talked about like when people are problematic and they create work like what do we do with it yeah. and I think Connie and I both agreed like at least like at like bare minimum you have to like mention the problematic parts oh yeah I think. Th- I think I'm happy we're putting this interview, you know, towards the beginning of this series just because it will continue to ground this discussion in the genre of fantasy, both, you know, how it comes from in history, but also like how it is a really powerful way for people to interact with it. And therefore, the reactions are going to be quite varied. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Because yeah. there's a lot of like intense childhood emotional pull to these things, so mm-hmm. that, I'm glad. I'm, I'm really, I really love this discussion, and you know, I think we should say there's there's podcasts out there like Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. I think are doing great jobs at really digging into these texts and finding things that are both really worthwhile to hold on to and things that really need to be let go, put aside, and actually, you know, maybe condemned. So mm-hmm. these things are complicated. Um, so one thing about Harry Potter and C.S. Lewis is many of us were allowed to read C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of us were not allowed to read Harry Potter. And a few in between weren't allowed to read Tolkien. Right. Yeah. So um, this is – usually we do a segment um, about um, Dear Wormwood. Mm-hmm. We are switching gears today oh. um, to talk about – uh, the segment is called, Is It Magic? Is It Witchcraft? Is It Deep Magic? Or Is It Deeper Magic? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to tell you. Okay. Because <laughs> that's some of the right. breakdown. Oh, I know. Right? And you talk about this in the interview, like the difference between like magic and witchcraft. And Okay, so uh, I'm just going to tell you something magical. you got to tell me mm-hmm. which category. A cordial made of the juice of the fire flowers that grow in the mountains of the sun. What? That's Lucy's cordial. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Magic. Okay. Cruciatus curse. Cru- uh, witchcraft. Okay. A spell for knowing what others are thinking of you. Ooh, witchcraft. Okay. Walking trees. Deep magic. Patronus spell. 
Um, the witchcraft. Bringing people back from the dead. Oh, geez. That's the deepest magic. I wasn't sure. It could go either way, right? But it's also in Harry Potter, so witchcraft. Yeah. (laughs) Coming back from the dead. The Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, Transfiguration spells like Animagus. You can't say that right. No, I can't. I'm sorry. Witchcraft. The Transfiguration. Oof. The deepest magic. (laughs) I threw some Bible examples in This is in very here. interesting. Uh, a ring that makes you invisible. Tolkien magic. Talking animals. C.S. Lewis magic. <laughs> you can't just make I am. That's what we did growing up. Stepping into another world through a wardrobe. Yeah, that's the that's a good one. Uh, good a, kind. a vanishing cabinet. That's the bad kind. Invisible cloak. Bad. Swords. Bad. Oh, no, good! <laughs> I don't know. I just threw swords in there. Well, that about explains our philosophy right. that we were born into yes. regarding good and bad It really magic. just <laughs> depends on who wrote it, not like the actual content. Uh, right. That was awesome. Okay. Well, I think that like really sets it up for talking about, because uh-huh. she does, you know, we talk a little bit about Hebrew scriptures. Uh, talk about Harry Potter and talk about C.S. Lewis. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Let's get into it. Okay, I'm so excited today to talk to someone who actually teaches a very popular course on all sorts of fantasy books, including the Chronicles of Narnia. And I saw online that this course uh, our guest today teaches is is kind of known as the Harry Potter course. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So today we have Dr. Sonia Cronin with us, and she teaches at Florida State University. So you're coming from the very other side of the country because I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. And I was wondering if you might just be able to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I teach in the religion department, and um, my background is Bible predominantly. So I'm biblical studies. I do first century Christianity and Judaism. Um, one of my texts in particular is the gospel of John. Um, and I do Catholic biblical interpretation as well. And then, you know, I've taught old Testament for about 20 years. So that ends up feeding into, um, you know, a lot of what I do in terms of everything is built. You've got your old Testament stories, your old Testament theology, um, although, you know, outside of a, of a, of an evangelical context, you know, we always, we always say Hebrew Bible. And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, that, that's, that's my background is, um, you know, religious studies, Christianity, biblical text and interpretation. And what I focused on in the last few years in particular are stories, um, which makes sense because my, my interest in Hebrew Bible is all of those stories, you know, Genesis, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Garden of Eden. And, um, you know, anytime you pick those things, I like narrative and I like what narrative teaches us. And so that just lends very, very easily. It takes us right into fantasy um, because fantasy is safe space to um, to learn the virtues of the world uh, in, in a way that's not quite um, thou shalt. Right. You know, so once upon a time does something for us that thou shall and thou shalt not just doesn't do. It bores us. You know, we start getting the rules and bulleted lists and we check out, but you start telling us a story and we are so interested, you know, it's just the nature of people. So. Yeah. I love that. I I just, I have so many questions, even as you are saying this background. Um, 
one question, maybe we'll get back to this, is if you think there's any any particular stories or books in the Hebrew scriptures in particular that have the most parallel to the fantasy genre, what do you think? So, I mean, when I teach, we start with the creation story. We mm. start with Adam and Eve, um, because I would, I would go as far as to say that you can't understand Lewis Tolkien or even what's going on with, uh, with Harry Potter without understanding what's happening, um, with Adam and Eve and the notion of the fall and what fall, what the fall, the impact of the fall on the world, on creation, on relationships, and then what restoration and redemption begins to look like. Our entire notion of evil comes from this story, in very particular, Augustine's understanding of this. And what I mean by that is um, evil is not simply an entity of its own. Evil is fallenness, right? Mm. So it's corruption that must be healed. It's something that is meant to be fixed, not destroyed. So when you see the evil person, it doesn't matter whether it's in Lewis, Tolkien, or Harry Potter, right? We're, we're talking about, we don't just get to annihilate them. Um, they are they are good creations that must be restored. So it factors into the way that Harry deals with Voldemort in the entire series, right? There's never this moment where Harry's trying to actually take him out. Harry's always trying to bring him back. And so that ends up being a very, um, very Christian Western way of understanding um, fallen redemption. Wow. Okay. I love that. And we're going to get into the Harry Potter stuff. I do have a question for you. So sure. you, you've had this background of, you know, biblical interpretation, looking at biblical texts, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. So that's a wide range. And how does it feel to have like now your most popular course be on Harry Potter? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, the, this is the unfortunate thing, right? You, you teach a Hebrew Bible course and you've got 70 people that come into it. And if you are animated enough, you might be able to keep the attention of half of them. Um, so they're in it because it satisfies a humanities requirement. Mm-hmm. Most people are not running to sign up for Hebrew scriptures, you know, no matter no matter what their faith background might be. Um, people signing up for Harry Potter, they want to be there. Mm-hmm. So frankly, unless you bomb, like unless you just sit there and, and shred the material and make it nothing... All you have to do is is read, <laughs> like, yeah. and, and everybody's pretty much happy. Which means that you've got a very enthusiastic class from day one. All you have to do is just keep the enthusiasm there. So it's a fantastic class to teach. It never gets old. I've been teaching that since two thousand nine, and um, some classes much bigger than others. So right now I do a, a summer study abroad. Unfortunately, with COVID, there's no summer study abroad mm-hmm. this time. But, um, you know, those are particularly fun because the class sizes are like 9, 10, 11, you know, that kind of thing. So you get a, a lot of conversation, whereas in the in the actual classroom, like on campus, um, those classes are two to 300 people. Wow. And then the way you structure it, well, you don't even have to talk about structuring, but you talk about Harry Potter, but you also are bringing up the works of Tolkien and Lewis, like you've mentioned yeah. several times. So how do you introduce sort of like modern students to those works and what they meant um, in connection with more recent things like Harry Potter? Um, so so when you're dealing with Lewis and Tolkien in particular, you have to set them back in the 1940s and 50s, which means that everything about them um, – has to be put into that context. So like one of the things that I do in a classroom is I bring up the the history of Disney 
you know, and because what happens, especially with Lewis, I mean, and you probably already discussed this with someone else, but um, Lewis can be seen as being very misogynistic and his, you know, his female characters, if they're beautiful, they're evil. And if they're not evil, it means that they've got their hands in dishwater or um, they're certainly not out on the battlefield, right? Susan can't go into battle. And um, Lucy's given, you know, a file to heal people, but certainly not a sword like Peter, right? And that's something that that in the 2000s we critique, but that's not the way it was in the 1950s, you know? And so we, we kind of have to put him back in that context. I'm not saying that I wouldn't like him to be more progressive. I'm just saying that we can only expect so much out of the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even with Tolkien, um, Eowyn goes down to the battlefield and I mean, she is fierce, you know, she is a, she's a woman of Rohan and, um, she takes down the witch King, but she, we, we have to put that in context too, right? That was, that was a prophecy. It was something, um, unexpected. It was not the norm. It was an aberration to the norm. And we're also dealing with Tolkien who is writing in the context of Catholicism. So we do have these virtuous women that um, tend to resemble Mary here and there, you know, um, they're, they're not the norm. They're, they're different. And, um, but, but I still love it. You know, it just, it just means that it's in a particular context. But the reason I bring up Disney is like, if you look at those early Disney films, our Disney villains are all gorgeous women. Um, so the wicked queen and snow white, I mean, snow white is dim and she talks to animals and, um, the wicked, (laughs) seriously, you know, and then she goes and cooks and cleans for a bunch of dwarves. I mean, that's her role until Prince Charming comes and saves her. Right. So this is nothing new. We don't have anything really changed until say the little mermaid with Ariel. Um, and then we still have, you know, a wicked woman that is in charge there. So it, it takes a long time before um, Disney kind of is able to come up to speed. And so it's not necessarily a critique against Disney, but it's, it's something to say about the way that the world has progressed and the way that we view women in the West. Yeah. Yeah. And how does, when you're teaching your class, how do you bring up sort of the religious nature of the Chronicles of Narnia? How does that come up? Um, it, it doesn't have to be brought up. It's, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of hits you in the face with it. Um, everything in C.S. Lewis is religious. You know, the minute that you uh, are dealing with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I mean, Aslan means lion, but um, anybody with, with the eyes to see, so to speak, um, you realize very quickly that he is the Lion of Judah, right? He is the Christ figure. And so he's not very veiled about this, right? I mean, it's not like the redemptive character in the Chronicles of Narnia is the beaver. It's the lion, right? Mm-hmm. So we expect this if you know anything about the way that the, the, the narrative, the biblical narrative works. Um, and then, of course, you know, when he when he dies, and then, of course, that deeper magic brings him back. Um, it's, you know, this isn't hard to figure out where this is coming from. The only people that I've had that didn't know this was religious are the kids that came into the classroom and they've never been into a church. They'd never heard the the gospel text before. Um, but even kids that don't know their Bibles at all, they, you know, it's not really rocket science to go, Oh, look at that. He's a Jesus figure, you know, um, death and resurrection tends to do that. So, yeah. yeah. And, 
Um, I mean, I've, I've talked to some people and even some academics who, if kids grew up really loving these books and they weren't Christian and then later finding out they were, you know, there can be even a sense of betrayal and like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And, yeah. and that's really interesting for me to think about because as someone who is evangelical, I knew from, you know, day one. Yeah. And in fact, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was my least favorite book because it was a story I'd heard so many times in my yes. life, you know? Yeah. Um, and so therefore other books in this series really spoke more to my imagination because they were so different from the stories I've been told repeatedly. What's that's your favorite? A, well, that's a complicated question to answer because my favorite was The Horse and His Boy. And Ooh. I would say there's elements of that now, when I go back and read it, it's very disturbing to me. And it's really hard for me to see past sort of like the East, West, good, bad binary that Lewis was operating out of. So yeah. I'm like, as a kid, I'm like talking horses and like this incredible exotic land. And now I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what to do. We're stuck with that. Yeah. It's, it's true. Yeah, so so that's that's my connection. But part of this podcast series really is to say, how do we kind of move past? You know, I would say growing up as a kid, this this good bad binary was all around, right? What's safe for us to engage in culturally? Yeah. And Chronicles of Narnia made it in, yes, safe. Now that I'm in my mid thirties, I have kids of my own. I'm wanting them to sort of experience the world in its full diversity of thought. And my focus is not necessarily keeping them safe and sheltered, um, but having real conversations and, and um, you know, invoking curiosity for the world that is outside their experience. I, I now am still struggling with the good bad binary of saying like, wow, maybe the horse and his boy is just not worth reading at all. And I don't care about it. And I am going to read something else with my kids, you know? So that's sort of what I'm coming up against. And I think a lot of people listening to this have that same question as well. And one thing that people keep telling me and asking me is what is up with evangelical Christians in particular saying, you know, Chronicles of Narnia is okay, but like Harry Potter is completely off limits. And, you know, Tolkien is okay, but, you know, J.K. Rowling, oh my gosh, no, not at all. And for me, I think the answer always seemed obvious, like, well, because C.S. Lewis was writing Christian, not allegory, but you know what I mean? Like Christian stories and, and Tolkien was influenced by that as well. But do you think there's something more than that going on? Or what, how would you talk about why is there such a deep distrust of other fantasy works among groups like evangelical Christians? Yeah, I think some of it is um, the unfortunate thing that most I'm going to, I'm going to blanket here. Um, most evangelicals, most people in general don't have time we don't, we, we don't have time. We have jobs. We work eight to five. We come back. Um, we've got to cook dinner. We've got to feed the kids. They've got to go outside and play. Nobody has time for this. Meaning that we're trusting the leaders in our world to tell us what's safe to read and what's not to read. Mm -hmm. And all it's going to take is one pastor or one somebody, or, you know, a leader in the evangelical movement to go, it's not worth reading us because you, you don't have time to combat all the negative that we see that's here. And so it becomes blacklisted. Um, and it's something that, you know, when I'm teaching, I ask a lot of the, you know, 18 year olds, we have these clicker things and, and it's one of the questions, do you think parents have the right to ban books? And it always surprises me how many of them go, absolutely not. 
And it, it, because, you know, they, parents come in and tell you, you can't eat pop tarts. They're garbage. Um, you can't, uh, go out after dark. You can't walk this side of town because you might get hurt. Um, and yet somehow, uh, information and ideas is something that's not supposed to be policed. Of course we police them. We don't want our kids eating garbage or or reading garbage, you know, or something that we think is going to be toxic. So what happens, I think, with the Lewis and Tolkien situation is, number one, um, they are scholars. They um, were at Oxford. Um, they Lewis had this history of writing Christian apologetics long before he ever started writing um, Christian fiction. And so he was safe. We already knew exactly what he thought before he ever put pen to paper with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then when he put Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in, in, in ink, um, all of a sudden, it's, it's so obvious. I mean, you know, the big thing that Lewis has to deal with is, did he write Christian allegory? And he argues very vehemently that he didn't, because that was kind of a lesser form of writing for his circle of friends, you know? Um, but the, you know, the fact that he has to defend so aggressively against it tells us that it's, uh, unless you absolutely don't know the gospel story, it's very hard not to see it there. The same thing with Tolkien in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I've actually, I know families that didn't let their kids read Lord of the Rings either because of the wizardry in there. Um, but that's kind of more few and far between for most people. Tolkien was a believer, and, um, you know, the, the themes that were there, even though he got into some wizardry and magic, it didn't cross into what we considered to be witchcraft in the, the, the evangelical world. Um, J.K. Rowling was a completely unknown. She's a woman. Um, she's divorced. I mean, she's got a lot of strikes against her, frankly, for the evangelical crowd. I mean, she does. And then she comes in and her opening lines to this book are about black cats and people transforming into, you know, you've got McGonagall that transforms into a black cat and she's got this scarring and you've got, uh, meaning, meaning, uh, not scarring, but, um, she's got these markings on her that, that resemble her, her real self. Mm. Um, you've got Dumbledore that shows up with these crazy boots and this purple cloak, you know, um, the half moon spectacles and they all show up at this house and we find out about witches and wizards and the, the very language that she uses um, is something that is that is offensive. She pushes all the buttons that scream out Halloween. Um, and the, the the things that evangelicals have guarded against. So it it crosses into that world that makes everybody nervous. Are we exposing our children to witchcraft? Are we exposing our children to Satanism? And this goes all the way back to kind of the notions of what a covenantal community looks like. Um, So if you know anything about like Deuteronomy 28, it feeds into Proverbs and and other passages, other other, uh, sections of Bible. But the the basic essence of this um, idea is that if you keep covenant, if you do what's right, this is not just individual, this is as a community, then God's going to bless you. And if you break covenant, if you don't do what's right, then God's going to curse you. There's there's no in-between. So there is no moment where you can look up to the heavens and go, I don't think so. I'm not into this anymore, right? You do that, you put yourself in cursed world. And so what happens with that, of course, is that it's not just one individual 
um, I mean, it's not just the entire community. One individual can ruin this for everyone. Mm. So, you know, I decide that I want to be bold and go, you know, dabble in witchcraft. And all of a sudden it's not raining and the opposing armies now can come in our gates because our protection has been lifted. So this becomes part of the concern overall um, in terms of a religious belief system that guards against these things. Um, the other thing that goes on with this is this this idea of what kind of witchcraft are we talking about? So when we're with Lewis, we're in this other world, and it seems very obvious. We're in a world of talking animals. Like mm-hmm. there's no question about the fact that we've crossed out of our primary world and into a secondary world where beavers talk and children can get into magical lands by virtue of, um, you know, different mechanisms. They can go through the back of a wardrobe. They can um, put on these magic rings. They can do any number of things. A painting all of a sudden comes alive. And this world of Narnia is not our world, right? So even, even the world that the Pevensey children inhabit is different than our world because every parent knows they're not, their kids aren't going through a painting. There's no danger of that. Um, in the world of J.K. Rowling, we're in we're in boarding school. We're in modern day England. Harry is minding his own business, and then all of a sudden he finds out he's a wizard. Right. So this isn't simply I've tripped into another world. This is th- something about my being is now wizard or witch. And as he begins to act on this, he's able to do the things that concern us about witches and wizards, right? You know, he can move the glass and make uh, Dudley fall into it. So all of these things are a little concerning. Um, What we miss, though, is the lines kind of get blurred, right? Because Harry doesn't wake up one day, get a magic book, and start going under that little cupboard under the stairs and start, you know, mixing potions. That's not what this is. Um, it is something about his being. He was designed that way. And that's where I think the, the safe the safe place comes in for evangelicals to read this, is that he's not transforming himself into something. He is what he is, right? He didn't decide to be a wizard. He was created a wizard. And for the, for the Christian, especially rooted in, in the West, this idea of the way that we were created is something that's very strong. And so where we would be in the Chronicles of Narnia, Uncle Andrew is a good example of the guy conjuring and he's bad, right? Mm-hmm. But um, Aslan, of course, is is tied into the original deeper magic that sings the world into being. So that's that's how I would describe some difference there. Yeah, and I also think, you know, rereading... I'm I'm reading the Harry Potter series with my almost 10-year-old right now, and we're just in book five. And it is really interesting to read it and just feel some uncomfortable tension with, you know, J.K. Rowling maybe not having so much a religious underpinning to her writing, but definitely some political stuff there with um, in regards to authority figures and what authority figures do to keep a sense of peace, you know, which is a false peace. And so I've been really struck by how it has caused me to think a lot. And this is not what I did when I read it, you know, when I was like 18 or something, you know, for the first time. So just understanding like there's, there's definitely layers 
two works of fantasy and that's why people are drawn to them, right? That's why authors are drawn to write them. But I really, I, I really want to go back to what you were saying about C.S. Lewis being safe because he wrote apologetics. That just blew my mind. And I think that is a hundred percent has to be the reason why it's so safe for us because we knew what he thought, even though it is kind of funny to think, you know, modern day white evangelicals would not consider C.S. Lewis orthodox in, in many respects. Right. Right. Emmett makes it into heaven. (laughs) Right. At the end of the last battle, you got this guy sitting there and he has no idea why he's here. You know, I know. Um, I mean, even Lewis, right. Talking about, Father Christmas and and some pagan. Yes, I mean it's it's all over the map, and uh, I, I think that's funny. But I also agree with you that Tolkien was always sort of behind Lewis as far as like safety mm-hmm. meters in my life. Like it's a great story, but it's not really that Christian. And honestly, Gandalf is a very confusing figure, and we're not quite sure. But you know, when I was in high school, I definitely trotted out the well. Gandalf was a wizard bomb, so you should let me read Harry Potter. <laughs> right, of course. Um, but it's not knowing that that, that did not matter to her. <laughs> yeah, that did that did not matter to my mom, and to this day, she is anti Harry Potter, and it kind of annoys her that my kids love it so much. Um, <laughs> but this is the modern evangelical story, isn't it? Uh, and I. I like them as books. I also think they deserve to be explored and critiqued. And it's actually um, caused me to enjoy them more. And so even when I started this series, same thing with C.S. Lewis's books, I'm like, maybe they're just relics of the past and need to be put aside on the shelf forever. And now it's like, there's so much going on here. I feel my sense of curiosity expanding. And it's not threatening. And I think that's a, a great thing to move past, right? When we critique some of these works, sometimes we can feel threatened. Uh, do you think that's because of us being readers or I, I'm just trying to understand if, if you've seen that sometimes with your own students as they dive into Harry Potter or some of these books, how do they sort of deal with being able to critique and love something at the same time? I think it's harder when we think about it and it's harder when you have a community behind you. I mean, the community is wonderful, um, but the community also holds you to task and you you feel a little bit nervous about whether I can like this when I'm not supposed to, right? Is it forbidden? And if that's the case, why am I attracted to this forbidden stuff? Mm. Um, you know, but I always said, if I ever wrote a novel, I hope they ban it because then everybody will read it. You know, um, that's just the nature of anything that we put, you know, forbidden on. Everybody now wants to read it and wants to know why, why, why could it be so forbidden? Um, but, you know, I do want to go a little bit further back to, to Harry Potter, which, um, you know, there was one of the things that we do in uh, the classroom is we, is we bring up the kind of pros and cons. So there's a guy named Richard Baines that has, that when it first came out, wrote these books about why Christians should not read Harry Potter. And so we bring some of his stuff in there. Um, and then there's another guy who's a classicist. His name is John Granger. And he found that he loved he loved Harry Potter and, and just ended up just waxing eloquently about why this is actually safe. And, and the two together, um, you know, they kind of play nicely off of each other. But one of the things that Abaynes critiqued about Harry Potter was that, you know, you, especially from the very beginning in Sorcerer's Stone, you've got the kids, Harry, that is, he's constantly breaking the rules and he never gets in trouble. Um, Hermione Granger lies to McGonagall 
you know, about the troll in the bathroom and why she went in there. And that ends up working out. It ends up being something good instead of bad. And he's just like pulling his hair out, you know, trying to go, this is absolutely not what we want as parents, you know, our kids knowing that they can kind of lie to our face and everything works out good. But, you know, the underlying play on this is something that I think goes back into kind of British school children at boarding schools kind of thing. And some of this is that the teachers stand outside the realm and the children have to figure out a way to have peace with one another. And those friendships that are born in those situations are far more important than the little lie that we might tell. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that's that's important in all of this, right? When we start thinking about concepts of what does it mean to be a friend, um, when when Jesus in the Gospels says, you know, what greater love does a man have than that he would lay his life down for, for his friend? What does that actually mean? You know, do we have any concept of what friendship means? Um, it's it's hard to put meat on a concept. It stands out there in that, you know, platonic ethereal realm and we don't know what to do with it. But when we stand there with Hermione in book seven and she chooses to stay with Harry, even though Ron is throwing a fit and is about to walk out on her, you know, one of the jokes that we always had with my kids is never, ever stand in the way between the guy and the girlfriend or the girl and the boyfriend, because they're always going to pick the boyfriend or girlfriend. It doesn't matter how long that friendship has last. There's something about being a teenager that the boyfriend, girlfriend always wins. And Hermione defies that. She picks Harry. She is steadfast. She is a friend. And it's the kind of thing that when we're looking back and we're searching for what kind of friend do I want to be, we can look at Hermione and she will tell us, right? And it's the same thing with like Samwise Gamgee, regardless of how far Frodo is falling, Sam is going to tell us how we're supposed to be. And in being that friend, we will attract those friends. And there's something about tying into those concepts with some sort of concrete reality that doesn't even have to be real. It's just, it's just the episode that reminds us this is what friendship looks like. And then it leads us from there back to the Gospels. And then all of a sudden the Gospels become real. So this is, this is what fantasy does. And this yeah. is, I mean, Harry Potter does it just as much as the rest of them. And there's value to be found in in thinking through these themes. Like even you talking yeah. about friendship right now, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is really impactful. And it makes me assess, you know, growing up within American evangelicalism, there was such a strand of individualism there. And also, um, you know, hierarchy is needed, right? Yeah. Especially within the family um, and especially with children needing to be obedient to parents. And so I can see why a lot of, children's literature is threatening um, to that. You know, I wasn't allowed to read a ton, even like babysitters club was sort of like, Oh my gosh, like do they have too much autonomy as like 12 year olds or whatever, you know? Um, And, and so thinking through, even though, you know, these are all British authors, they, they definitely do to things like boarding schools. Like you're saying, they have a much broader sense of how important friendship is to a well-rounded life. Um, And it's less about your own personal family and making sure everybody grows up to think exactly <laughs> like exactly. you did. I mean, like whether we're dealing with Lewis or, I mean, I'm trying to think about if Tolkien deals with this as much. I, I think Lewis and, and uh, Rowling do this better. Um, but the parents are not micromanagers. You know, with Lewis, it's only when they think that 
that Lucy is going crazy, <laughs> that they actually go to the professor and, and talk. But it's not like we have these glimpses of them sitting down to dinner and the professor going, so what were you guys talking about today? Like anything interesting? It's, there's, a, there's a huge gap between the children and the authority figures. Mm-hmm. The authority figures are there and they keep pointing them in the right direction. And that's something that Lewis really does. Um, I have a picture actually of a robin that sits on my desk because of the robin in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? When the kids are absolutely lost, Lewis sends a robin to them. And we're told that the robins are always good in every book that Peter's ever read. So we can trust them. And it's, it's just a passing line. But Lewis is telling us that good literature teaches us what we can trust and what we cannot. Mm-hmm. And so Peter had been given good literature, as opposed to Eustace Clarence Scrub, who read catalogs about kids doing exercises in elevators and things like that. It was such a bizarre reference, you know, yeah. Yeah. but it's so memorable and so comedic. Um But we know the difference, right? When Eustace runs into a dragon, he has no idea of the signs. He doesn't know that he's sitting on a hoard of gold and there must be a dragon around. Peter would have known that, you know, and because Peter read all the right books. But because of that, Peter also knew that he could trust the Robin. And for Lewis, there's always going to be something there for these kids that lead them in the right direction. And it doesn't require the micromanaging of parents. So for, for Lewis, in some ways, it's like hand him a good book and then step back um, and trust that they're going to get what they need out of the book. But then, of course, it makes it all the more important that you're giving them the right books. You know? Oh, OK. I think this, OK, this is great. And I think maybe this would be a great question to sort of end our interview on. Do you think C.S. Lewis would have thought the Harry Potter series were good books, the kind of dragon and gold and adventure books would. that he loved? I think he would. I really do. Um, And it's not just because I want him to have. Um, It's it's (laughs) because I really do. Um, It's got all the swashbuckling. It's got the dragons. It's got um, the adventure. It's got the forbidden forest. It has the three-headed dog. But it has all the other things that we need, too. It has McGonagall. It has Dumbledore, who are keeping a much closer eye than anybody ever realizes. But they're far enough back that the kids can be kids. And that's something that Dumbledore does well, right? I mean, throughout the whole thing, there's that tension that we have as readers. Does Dumbledore know what's going on here, right? Is he seeing? And he is. He's seeing far more than anybody realizes. And we can trust that. I mean, he's really in charge of this whole thing from beginning to end. Um, So we have the proper authority figures, but we also have the proper virtues. Friendship is one of those virtues. Pity is another, Mm. right? No matter how angry Harry gets, he has compassion for the people around him. Um, He has compassion for Luna Lovegood, who's probably my favorite character in the entire series, right? She's just so wacky, but she comes out being just pure gold, um, and you see this, I mean, even with, I, I mean, I'm assuming that your listeners have, have read this because there's some spoilers here, right? Um, but even when we get to the end, you know, and we're in Malfoy Manor, um, Peter Pettigrew's active, of, well, gets confusing. Is it, yeah. is it compassion or what's going on there? Um, all of this is the grace that you have given, it will come back to you, right? Mm. That's what we're dealing with here. It's very much Gandalf looking at Frodo going, you better have pity because pity is the thing that saved Bilbo's life. 
And will it save yours? Mm. You know, that's, that's the thing in the measure in which you have grace, that grace comes back upon you. And that is Harry Potter. It's all the way through it, all the way to the very last battle. Um, which is, which is a neat little pun considering Lewis's last battle. So there we go. Okay. I just, I've loved this conversation. I just wish every person who teaches on fantasy literature could have a background in the Hebrew scriptures. And I wish my professors at my Bible college had uh, talked more about fantasy. I think this is such a wonderful overlap and, you know, I'm getting a little bit of that feeling C.S. Lewis got right when he would read good books and just that sense of joy of like, this is so big and it's so, it's just life giving to immerse ourselves in these bigger themes and these bigger questions um, and these virtues like you're talking about. I think it's, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile time. And, and that's why I'm going to, I'm going to be reading all of these things to my kids and, and to myself. Um, yeah. And you absolutely should. I, I really do to kind of, you know, put the, put the punctuation on this. It's not just about the fantasy, especially for those who are readers of Bible um, those themes in fantasy, because they are actually based a number a number of them on um, biblical scriptures, they highlight their interpretive texts. And so, like one of my favorite favorite things that has sort of come up, you know, is that when you see Harry walking into the Forbidden Forest. And as he looks at everybody there, right, he goes through the Great Hall and he sees Ginny and he sees the Weasleys and he sees Neville and, you know, he sees all of the people that he loves. It That's the last glimpse bef- before he gives his life to Voldemort. Mm. And it's that actually caused me to reflect on Jesus in the Gospel of John. Because when Jesus walks to the cross in the Gospel of John, it's right after the Lazarus moment. And he, he stands there with Lazarus, calls him back, and then says, none of my friends are ever going to have to deal with this again. Mm. And from that moment, everything else in the Gospel of John is on the way to the cross. Mm. Um, and it's it puts a very personal, uh, personal human side to Jesus in that mm. moment in the Gospel of John where he, where we have that kind of most Christological moment, I am the resurrection, you know? So in that moment, it's, it's peak, it's the limits of both. It's the limits of humanity. It's the limits of divinity. Um, and that became real evident to me from the forbidden forest scene, you know? So there's some fun stuff that comes from reading this. Oh, Dr. Cronin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. I'm sure everybody wishes they could take your course. It's a fun uh, course. I, oh, can't, I can't even say anything else about it. Yeah. I wish I could take it too, but thank you for giving us just a, a tiny taste of this and for encouraging us. Um, Cause you know, I want to be a good reader the rest of my life. I really do. So thank you so much. Um, and I hope, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me here. It's been fun. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.